Well, in case we've never met, you just heard my name is <clears throat> Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church, and it is good to uh, preach to you this morning from on high. This is very different from from the last place. We were down low level, everybody. I feel very, I feel especially tall. Um, this morning. All right, we are just going to jump into this deep and rich text this morning. Um, if you do not yet have a scripture journal and would like one, just raise your hand and uh, someone will bring you one so that you can take notes. Um, just so you know, we'll be, be a little more note heavy visually up on the screen than what Kevin uh, sometimes provides you. So if you are a writer this morning, this is going to be for you. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in and we're going to plow through this passage. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. What a way to start, right? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, if you've been with us at all through the book of Corinthians, you saw at the very beginning, this book opens with divisions and factions in the church, right? Some of them were saying, hey, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I'm following Peter, and Paul is like, no, you're supposed to follow Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. It is not about following some man and setting up your theological theological camps or liking this speaker better than the other. That is not what this is about. And so he had to correct them and get them to follow Jesus. But those aren't the only divisions and factions we've seen so far. We've seen there's issues with lawsuits among believers in the church. There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. I mean, there have been a lot of issues and divisions and factions in the church. But yet we come to this one that might seem a little weird and strange to us here in this context that these people are actually in their gospel community groups because this is how they would have gathered in the first century church. They would have gathered in homes, uh, sometimes on a weekly basis, but often even on a daily basis to come together as the body of Christ. And when they were there, they would break bread with one another. They would drink wine, they would eat food, and they would take the Lord's Supper together. But apparently there were some people who were coming and having a too good of a time, right? They were coming and they were eating all the food and they were drinking all the drink. Well, so why is this happening? What is taking place? Well, as best we can discern, as best we can tell, is that um, there were some people who had more means and more resources than other people, and they were bringing food and drink to the gospel community church gathering, and they were not sharing with those who had less. 
And if you've ever been a part of a, a church potluck or, you know, where you bring things together, how we often gather in our groups, you can just kind of imagine how it would go if you brought more food than someone else and then you kept that food for yourself and didn't share it with anyone else. This would cause a division and faction among you in your group. And you have to remember, as I preached a, a few weeks ago, um, about 70% of the Roman world at this time would have been bond servants or indentured slaves. And so you probably had a church where you had 30% of the people who would have been the free people, who would have been the wealthy people, and a church that was about 70% indentured slaves, maybe even to these exact people. And so where they're supposed to be gathering as one as the body of Christ, the rich people aren't sharing with the poor people. And in turn, they're going beyond that and they're being gluttonous and they're getting drunk while they're supposed to be observing the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, this is not acceptable in the body of Christ. This is not acceptable in the church. So just as a quick idea, what, what, what is envisioned in Paul's mind of what this should have looked like? Because you have to remember that um, the early church, when it began to gather, we have this great example for us in Acts 2, 42-47, that when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, we're given this great descriptive text of what the early church looked like. Now, let me just point out to you, this is not a prescriptive text telling us what it must look like, but it's describing for us what it did look like, and this is probably something more that Paul had in mind as he is correcting them and saying what they are doing is wrong. Because in Acts 2.42 it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread together in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we have this incredible example that in the earliest part of the church, when it gathers after the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, that people were gathering, they were following the apostles' teaching, but they were sharing equally with one another to make sure that no one was in need. So this is the ideal that we see in Scripture, and we see how what is going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 11 is actually very far from that ideal. Now, let me just say to you, there, there will be divisions and factions in the church. Right, And this is one of those things that you just have to accept as a follower of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. It doesn't mean you run away and just go to the next church because those crazy Christians over there are fighting. But you just need to know and you need to recognize there is an enemy of our soul. There is an enemy of our church who is always seeking to sow discord in the body of Christ. And so we then need to be very vigilant in looking for that discord, looking for those factions, praying against those things so that we can be strengthened, so that the church can be strengthened. But do not be surprised, and maybe some of you have experienced division and faction in a church. It's no fun whatsoever, but God may call you one day to step into that and to be a part of that, to bring about unity, to correct some division or some faction in the church. 
But if it ever happens, let me just say, don't run away and just go to the next one. Because if you are a part of a true body of Christ, there will be fighting at some point in time. All families fight, right? So you just got to get used to that. You've got to know it, but just be aware of it and pray against it. Because you have to realize these factions will take, um, take many different shapes. They will take many different forms. Because the biggest faction early in the church, and I want to read this passage very quickly for you in Ephesians 2, chapter 11, 11 through 16, was over the issue of circumcision. But I, I want you to see what Christ came to do for the body of Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in Corinth, the divisions and factions were over who they were following and over this issue of food at the Lord's Supper. In the church in Ephesus, it was an issue over circumcision and uncircumcision. What might it be for you in your gospel community group or in the group that you run in here? Are there divisions and factions? Is there hostility between you and someone else? Let me encourage you with what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. He says, if you know that your brother or sister has something against you, if there's hostility, if there's division between you, before you even go to the altar to worship, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. So even today, if you know there's division and hostility between you and someone else, especially in this local body of Christ, we would encourage you before you even go to take communion, before you go to the altar to worship in communion at the end of the service, that you go and you make an attempt to make this right with someone. Because that is the attitude that we, we should be vigilant in trying to rid division and hostility that exists in the church. From here, we move into the heart of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, where Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you may eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The night before Jesus died, he and his disciples gathered in the upper room of a house and took time to observe the Passover. 
Now, I, I want to give a brief plug here. If you have never been a part of a Passover Seder, our church is going to host one the night before Resurrection Day on April the 16th. This is something that if you have never taken part in, I would encourage you all to put on your calendars to be a part of because it will give a much deeper and richer meaning to your faith if you understand this ancient, ancient tradition that Jesus and his disciples were taking part of. So let me explain the Passover, the Passover Seder, so that you understand what is taking place and why Jesus is going to institute this new covenant into his blood. Over a thousand years before the Son of God takes on flesh and becomes incarnate and dwells in our midst, the people of God were enslaved to the people of Egypt, and they had been enslaved there for 480 years. God raises up a man named Moses, and he says, Moses, I'm going to go use you to see the, the children of Israel set free. And I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tero, tell, tell Pharaoh, it is time to let my people go. And Moses goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times, thinking he is going to see the freedom of his people. And God sends plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And though the plagues get worse and worse and worse, Pharaoh indeed does not let his people go. And so finally, God tells uh, Moses, hey, all right, I am going to initiate a plague upon the land that will assuredly result in the release of my people from this bondage and the exodus will take place and you will be set free. He said, here soon on this night, I am going to bring the angel of death to pass over the land. And this angel of death is going to take the firstborn son of every family for whom a family has not sacrificed a lamb, a spotless lamb that is one year old, has no blemish, and in, and in faith, people do not take an offer as a sacrifice to me and put the blood of that lamb upon the doorpost. For every place the blood is, in that house, the death angel will pass over and the firstborn will be saved. But for every house where the blood has not been applied to that house, the firstborn will be taken." And as a part of that, there was an entire meal, an entire ceremony with bitter herbs and many other elements that they were to now observe as the children of God, as the nation of Israel on a yearly basis to remember what God did in the Passover in setting his people free. So Jesus is now sitting there with his disciples, this uh, ancient rite and ritual has been observed for over a thousand years. And Jesus says to his disciples, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Everything in the Passover, we, we, like, we call type and shadow. It was this representative, this shadow of what was to come, that Jesus says, I now hear, I am the fulfillment of everything this Passover has been. Everything the children of God have done as right and ritual on a yearly basis for over a thousand years, here in this moment, 
I am fulfilling it all. I, I am changing it all because this is now the new covenant in my blood. Now, they didn't understand this because it was not until the next day that Jesus would be crucified to pay for the sins of the world. And so now it's here. We've kind of been at the surface level talking about this, that we're about to do the submarine like, you know, 5,000 foot deep dive in the ocean and really get into this. Because I, I, I want to take this opportunity to deepen our understanding and our appreciation of what it is we observe every week when we take this communion. As I've been thinking about this passage for a while and, and pondering it, the, the, the thing that, that I know for me, this is for me personally, I know the easiest thing to do with communion is just to take it for granted. I know that every time we do it, because we do it every week, we go and, you know, we grab this really bad wafer um, that uh, I imagine tastes like 2,000-year-old flesh, you know, every time I take it. And, uh, and this juice, it's not, you know, that's way oversweetened, like, you know, like I can just do it like as, as just ritual because it's part of my rhythm. It's part of what we do. And, and, and oftentimes I just take it for granted uh, sometimes in an unworthy manner. And that's the warning Paul gives, right? He, he says, hey, I don't want you to, to do this in an unworthy manner. And so I, I want to help, I want to try and help us. This is my best attempt to help us deepen our understanding of what it is we do each and every week when we observe the Lord's Supper together as a church. And so I'm going to do it by introducing a, a, a big word to you. Now don't throw this big word up on the screen yet with, with, the, with the definition because we're not ready for that part yet, but it's the word propitiation, okay? So if you're a note taker, this is for you, and I'll even spell it out for you to help it out. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-T-I-A-T-O-N, right? We'll, we'll get up there in a minute, right? Okay, there it is, propitiation. So they, they put it up there for me, right? There it is, propitiation, okay? Now, do you know that this word actually exists in your Bible? Four times this word makes an appearance only in the New Testament. So I'm going to read for you one of those passages, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, what D.A. Carson has labeled the entire heart of the Bible. The entire heart of the gospel can be found here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, before we talk about propitiation, I'm going to give you one more word, expiation. All right. And all of you know the concept of expiation. You love the concept and the meaning of expiation, though you may not know what the word means. The word expiation just means the cleansing or the washing away of sin. 
Now, how often does this theme appear in the songs that we sing or in the things that we say to one another as followers of Jesus? You know, we all know the song, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? We, we have this imagery, even from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, about our sins, which are deep and red, and we know the stain of blood, are washed as white as snow. These themes are woven throughout the Scripture. And so when we think about what it is that Jesus has done for us, it is very important that we think about expiation, that we think about our sins being washed away, about our sins being cleansed. The, the Bible declares our sin being thrown as far as from the east as from the west into the sea of forgetfulness, that God will remember our sins no more. Amen. Hallelujah. I need to think about that and remember that more and more in my life. Especially when I'm deep in the muck and the mire of daily living. But there's more to what Jesus did for us. There's more to, to, to this communion, Lord's Supper, remembering that we do every week than just having our sins cleansed and washed away. And this is why we need to add to expiation a further, a broadening of our understanding that is propitiation. Because propitiation is everything that expiation is plus something else. Look at me at the definition on the screen. Propitiation is expiation plus the pacifying of God's wrath. Okay? And, and I know in like modern nomenclature, like nobody really wants to talk about the pacifying of God's wrath. Okay? But if you read the Scriptures, it does not take you very long to see how God feels about sin. You can see God's attitude towards sin. That God has a wrathful disposition towards sin. Because in that passage, Romans chapter 3 just before that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the whole thing, the whole argument Paul is building is that God's wrath is upon humanity because it continually chooses to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And so there is an active component to this wrath at times. There is a passive component to this wrath sometimes where God just allows human beings to go their own way and to do their own thing. And we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but it is something that is very real and is very present. And see, what, what, what propitiation does is it, it puts us into this permanently favorable state that once, God's, once we have been cleansed and washed away from our sins, once God's wrath has been pacified, we move into this permanently favorable state with God. So when you hear the word propitiation, you need to think cleansing of sin. You need to think the pacifying of God's wrath. But don't stop there. Make sure you move fully into this place of understanding that you now have this permanent 
favorability in the eyes of God. And let me give you a concept to hang, to hang this on, okay? If you've ever been into what is most likely an Asian restaurant, you've ever walked in, you've ever seen up at the register, you've seen like a little dish and like a little offering of food and like maybe a little statue and some little incense. You guys ever seen this at the cash register? Right, do you know why that exists? Because they are seeking propitiation. Because propitiation is this act of being put into a favorable state. Why do people offer things and make sacrifices to gods? So that the god will be then favorable toward them and act in a certain way. The reason they did this all throughout the nation of Israel, you see all these, all these idol sacrifices, they didn't view this big, one huge, massive deity. They had all these local deities that ruled and reigned over each little area. So that's why there's so many different gods over different places. And they would offer these sacrifices, hoping to make these gods propitious toward them. And so what, what the Bible is telling you, what it's telling me, is that with the death of Jesus, with the sacrifice of Jesus, with His instituting of the new covenant, you and I, as the children of God, have now been moved into this permanently favorable state with God, where we were once the enemies of God and at enmity with God, we are now in this permanently favorable state. And that's why we have to talk about our sin being cleansed. That's why we have to talk about the pacifying of wrath. We, we have to have these conversations with one another and to the people that we present the gospel to. Church, if there's, if there's nothing else you, you hear me say today, I, I want you to sit there and write this. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. You need to remember this. The deepest problem, the deepest human problem that you have is sin against a holy God. You may have financial problems. You may have relationship problems. You may have not good enough grade problems. You might have unemployment problems. You might have physical problems, mental problems, relational problems, emotional. I mean, I, you, you got all kinds of problems. But none of those is your most fundamental problem. None of those is your deepest problem. And as you can see, it says problem, not problem, up on the screen. So, uh, the deepest human problem that you have is your sin against a holy God. Now, you got to think about this, okay? Now, I, I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, the most defining attribute of God is what? His holiness. If you, if you think about how God is described in the Old Testament, He is most often described according to His character and to His nature. And as if you've ever heard me teach before, you've, I'm sure you've heard me say that when the Bible repeats itself, you need to pay attention. That's the Bible's literary device trying to get your attention to make a really strong point. So, for example, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, or if you're old KJV, verily, verily, I say unto you, right? That's Jesus saying, pay attention, because I just, I just repeated myself. I'm going to make a really big point, right? The only thing repeated in triplicate about God anywhere in Scripture is God is what? Holy, holy, holy. 
The Bible is communicating something to you about his nature and character that is above all other things. God being holy means he is separate from us. He is unlike us in every way imaginable. And this is the primary way in which God communicates to the world and to his people who he is, that he is holy, 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 and he has an absolute and utter disdain for sin. And you and I, when we are born into this world, we are born stained by sin because of our first father, Adam, and we sin on a very regular basis. And this is what makes the gospel story so amazing. Look, look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6-11. through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know what he's talking about? Us. Sweet, little, precious us. That little baby that your mama held in her arms all that time, she goes, oh, you're so sweet and wonderful. The label you got according to the Bible was ungodly. That's what you get. The label you get existing as a human being is ungodly. But it actually gets worse. Watch what it says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, so now you're ungodly, now you're a sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, which we've talked about. For if while we were enemies, okay, you were God's enemy. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I know you may have heard that universally people exist as the children of God. That is not true. There are two categories of people in Scripture. You are either an enemy of God or you are a child of God. And this may not be what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. Because it's only once you embrace that and accept that can you then allow communion, this Lord's Supper that we take, to take on this much deeper meaning that you and I, no matter how good, no matter how morally upright or righteous we thought we were, we were the enemies of God. And as the enemies of God, God overcomes that, God overlooks that, God initiates this entire action through the Son of God to redeem, to buy us back, to purchase us with His own blood so that we can be forever reconciled to Him. Because if for a while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I hope and I pray that this deepens your appreciation for what you get to take part in every single week. That you, before God, before the one who is just, became the justifier of the unjust, us, by applying Christ's work, by, by granting you the gift of faith, not because you were more cute and cuddly than all the rest, but out of His own sovereign will would choose you and say, you are now my child. 
I pray this deepens your understanding of communion, your appreciation for what it is we get to take part in each and every week. And I understand some of you may still be having a very hard time trying to swallow this pill about God's wrath being poured out upon you for your sin against Him. But if you just sit and you think about it, if you just ponder it, you, you, you actually know this has to be true and you actually want this to be true because you know and you feel it in your own life and you hear it in the cries of the world around us in this cause for justice. And whatever a human being thinks is right, we want someone to bring about that rightness in our world. Now, you can believe something is right and it'd be totally wrong and still clamor for it to be right. Just because just so you, you think it's right does not make it right. This very clearly tells us what is right and wrong. This is our standard for that. This should be the standard for the world. This is, is what we determine all these things. And you hear the world cry out in so many different ways for the orphan, for the trafficked, social justice. I mean, wherever you hear, you hear people cry out for this. Now, the question is, is it truly just and is it truly right? That's a different discussion for a different day. But we all feel this deep in our soul, and we want there to be a cosmic creator who sets all this right. And so J.I. Packer, who I'm going to quote a couple of times in the message today from his book, Knowing God, which I will say, if it's not in your library, needs to be in your library, and you need to slowly digest it over the course of your life more than once. This book is incredible and amazing. Uh, this is my multiple times through it uh, currently in my life right now. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. It issues in a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. And this, right, and this is righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator toward moral perversity in the, in the creature. God would not be just unless He inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. And the question is, do you and I understand this? If you do, you are now seeing to the very heart of the Christian gospel. No version of that message goes deeper than that which declares man's root problem before God to be his sin, which evokes his wrath, and God's basic provision for man to be propitiation, which out of wrath brings peace. Church, when Christ died upon that cross, He made available sin to be washed away, expiation. But He also made available the pacifying of God's wrath to be diverted for you. And this is propitiation. And this is a concept I would encourage you to think about and to ponder. It's one you're going to discuss in your gospel community groups. But I want to add one more layer to this. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says if you could sum up the gospel as most succinct and as most powerful as possible, how would you do it? 
And he said he spent a lot of time. And he finally got it down to three words. He says, if, if, if you want to know if somebody understands the gospel, you'll know it by if they understand these three words. And if you want to know how much someone really gets Christianity, it's how much they live out of these three words. He said, there is no richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than this. Adoption through propitiation. He says, there is nothing you could think about that is greater in all the world. There is nothing you could spend more time pondering and meditating and being absolutely leveled and floored by, by this idea of adoption through propitiation. If you want to live life well, if you want to live your best life now, memorize these words. Meditate on these words and be awed. Find yourself in wonder and amazement that God Himself would adopt us as sons and daughters. That God Himself would initiate in action the sending of His own Son, into this world to be the spotless lamb sacrificed on our behalf so that we, his enemies, could be reconciled to him. For that is what God has done on our behalf. And you got to think about this. When Paul starts talking and using all this adoption language, this would have totally messed up the worldview of the people that are hearing this, right? Because in the Roman world, adoption is not like it is today. In the Roman world, there would have been someone who was of means, someone of wealth, someone who had power, and they didn't have an heir. And they would go and they would search and they would find someone who was worthy, someone who was strong, who was powerful, who was smart, who had proven themselves so that they could then give them all the blessings of the inheritance. And Paul is preaching the, the exact opposite of that. He keeps saying over and over in this gospel message to all these churches, that is the exact opposite of what God has done. God has gone to the unworthy. God has gone to the lowly. God has gone to the worst of worst. He goes, he, Ephesians chapter 2, like remember what sinners you once were before Jesus came into your life and you were given this gift of, gift of faith. Remember who you were. He's like, this should blow your mind. Packer in his book, the longest chapter in the whole book, is all about your adoption through propitiation. So that we would know and have a deeper appreciation and understanding that you and I have been put into this permanently favorable state even though sometimes we can be pretty awful human beings. And we get to live from this state, knowing that Dad loves us. Now I want you to think about the Bible. Primarily, in the Old Testament, God reveals Himself by His nature and His character and His holiness. Now that is not lessened in any way as the New Testament. 
But once Jesus comes, what is the primary way through which people now relate to God? It is not primarily, first and foremost, seen through the nature of His character. It is now in direct relationship to Him as Father. This is what Jesus changes. This is what the new covenant in His blood radically alters and shifts for you and I who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We no longer have to fear the wrath and the punishment of God, but yet in awe and wonder get to worship the One who has redeemed us and bought us back and is giving us an inheritance forever simply because He has chosen us out of this world to make us His own. We are the sons and daughters of the King. We live from a permanent state of favor. God is not against us. God is for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you need to hear that today? Do you need to walk out of here today knowing that you are a child of God and God loves you no matter how bad you screw it up? And it does not mean that He might not spank your butt for your continually rebelling against Him even as His child. Because that's what a good daddy does. If you don't believe it, go read, Rome, go read Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines those He loves. But don't ever mistake God's discipline for you as a lack of His love. It is because He loves you that He will discipline you. But that's what a good parent does. But that in no way changes your status of being completely and total, totally favorable in His eyes because of your adoption through propitiation. And so now we're going we're gonna to get ready to move into communion, but we're not quite done yet. We're going we're gonna to mix this up just a little bit. We're going to combine some things here. So I'll just say, if you uh, are a follower of Jesus and you haven't yet grabbed the elements for communion, go ahead and go back and grab grab the elements, because we're going to combine this last part of the sermon and response together. So you can go ahead, the elements are on the back table. You can go ahead and do that. And I want you to and if you have, I just want you to hold the elements if you already have them. Because I want you to, I, I want you to think about this now. I want, I want you to ponder this because I, I want you to attach this in kind of a, in kind of a tactile manner. Okay, for especially for us kinesthetic learners, you know, I want us to, to be here. I want us to think about this. Because look what, look what Paul says. And again, I just want you, I want you to ponder this. And, and some of you may not feel like you should take communion today and participate in the Lord's Supper, and that's okay. It's okay. Let me just say, don't do this every Sunday just because everybody else does it or just because you normally do it. There are some times when you should just say as a follower of Jesus, I shouldn't take this today. Because if I take this today, I'm going to do it in an unworthy manner. And we're going to talk about what that is in just a second. But look what Paul says. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Again, not, not guilty that you lose your salvation, but it is a sin against God. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what does it look like to take communion in an unworthy manner? I don't have time to give you an exhaustive list, right? In, in this church, it was being done in an unworthy manner with how they were partaking in the food. They were being greedy around the table. They were, in fact, not sharing their possessions with one another. They were being greedy and covetous, and they were getting drunk, and who knows what else. But what about us? I think probably, honestly, that the way we probably most often violate this and take communion in an unworthy manner is when we come in here knowing that we have open and unconfessed sin in our lives that we have no intention of repenting from. That we're just kind of like, yep, I know I did that thing. Uh, I kind of feel bad that I did that thing. I wish I wouldn't do that thing, but I pretty much know I'm going to do that thing again. And I'm just going to keep going. Now, there's a difference between continually striving against sin and failing. That's, that's going to happen. Okay, I, I want you to hear that. We've all got sin in our lives that we wish we could just get rid of, that we might be willing to, you know, gouge out an eye to get rid of, but it just won't go away. And we're and you're fighting, and you're trying, and you're praying, and you're fasting, and you're just begging for God for a breakthrough. That's how we should be dealing with our sin. But let's be honest. We might have some sin in our lives to where we're just going like, eh. I'm pretty good in all these other areas. There's this one little one that I'm holding on to, and I know the Bible says it's wrong, and I know Jesus even said it was wrong, but I'm just going to hold on to it. And God will forgive me. I mean, that's what grace is for, right? No, that's not what grace is for. Because at that point, we're taking for granted what Jesus has done. 